Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Jordan Osserman, and today we're going to be speaking to Stain Van Hula, Derek Hook, and Callum Neal. These three are the authors, are the editors uh, of Volume 1 of Reading Lacan's Ecree, a new three-volume series featuring paragraph-by-paragraph commentaries from scholars and clinicians on the complete edition of Lacan's Ecree. Volume 1 is entitled Reading Lacan's Ecree, From Signification of the Phallus to Metaphor of the Subject, and was published by Rutledge in 2019. Uh, before we get started, just a brief announcement from our channel. Do you love psychoanalysis? Like to read? Do you ever fantasize about having a conversation with the authors of psychoanalytic books you read? Well, you're in luck. New Books in Psychoanalysis is opening its doors to potential new hosts. We're also looking for social media savvy interns who can help us reach more listeners and spread the gospel of psychoanalysis. If either possibility interests you, please send me an email at jordan.osserman at gmail.com. Now on to the show. Uh, I'll begin by introducing uh, our three editors. Uh, so Derek Hook uh, will be joining us um, again, and he is an associate professor of psychology at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh and an extraordinary professor of psychology at the University of Pretoria. Uh, Derek's the author of Six Moments in Lacan, uh, published in 2017, Post-Apartheid Conditions, uh, published in 2014, and A Critical Psychology of the Postcolonial, published in 2011. His most recent book is an edited collection of Robert Mangaliso Sabukwe's prison letters entitled Lie on Your Wounds. He was one of the founding editors of the Palgrave Journal Subjectivity, and along with Callum Neal, co-edits the Palgrave Lacan book series, and we're very pleased to welcome him back to the channel. Uh, Stain Van Hula is Professor of Psychoanalysis and Chair of the Department of Psychoanalysis and Clinical Consulting at Ghent University in Belgium. Uh, he's a psychoanalyst in private practice, a member of the New Lacanian School and the World Association of Psychoanalysis. Uh, and he's the author of a number of books, including The Subject of Psychosis, A Lacanian Perspective, and Psychiatric Diagnosis Revisited, From the DSM to Clinical Case Formulation. Uh, and finally, we'll be joined by Callum Neal, uh, who is an associate professor of psychoanalysis and cultural theory at Edinburgh Napier University and director of Lacan in Scotland. Callum has written uh, two books, uh, the first entitled Without Ground, Lacanian Ethics and the Assumption of Subjectivity and Ethics and Psychology Beyond Codes of Practice, uh, as well as uh, Callum has written numerous articles and book chapters and indeed a play. Um, and along with Derek, he runs the Palgrave uh, Lacan series and uh, is one of the editors of uh, the series we'll be speaking about today. Um, so it's really exciting that we have uh, these three uh, eminent Lacanian scholars uh, and practitioners on board with us today. And I think it'll be a really interesting um, and uh, original conversation um, uh, being able uh, not simply to speak to an author of a book, but to speak to uh, the editors of uh, a complicated and uh, fascinating project about um, bringing uh, commentary on the uh, Acree, um, uh, 
uh, into a kind of uh, systematic kind of organized series of volumes. Uh, so welcome to the three of you. Hi, Thanks, Jordan. Jordan. Thanks. Right. Thanks yeah. um, so uh, maybe we could start with just um, discussing how did this whole thing come about? Um, and I suppose um, whichever one of you kind of wishes to open up on that, um, that uh, I'd like to hear a bit about, uh, you know, who, wh where was the project? Who, who conceived of the project? And, um, you know, what, what was involved in trying to get people uh, to write for it? And kind of, yeah, what, what's the process been like? Um, well, maybe I'll say a few things. I think the project really was the brainchild of uh, Stain. Um, it was a good few years ago now when he, he actually brought the idea up uh, with Callum and myself. And I think part of the motivating idea here was that for many years we'd been relying on texts like the Muller and Richardson uh, Lacan and Language um, which was a useful, very you know, introductory basis for how to go about reading chapters within the Acree, but it, it always felt a little too short, um, not adequately developed. And of course, even that book, as, as valuable as it was, only selected a few chapters from the Acree. And of course, it predated the 2006 Bruce Fink full translation of uh, the whole of the Acree into English. So that was the the need underlying the project. Right. So, um, Stain, I wonder if you could say something about, uh, the three of you have a quite interesting introductory chapter to this volume about what kind of text actually is the Acree. And that kind of might help us grapple with why why is this three volume work necessary? So maybe you could, could you just expand a bit on, on what, what exactly is the Acree? What, what kind of text do we encounter when we open it? Well, Lacan's Acree is actually a collection of um, complex papers that were never meant originally to be grouped together in that volume um, that have a known history, uh, a known history in terms of Lacan's teaching, that have a known context within which they originated, that echo Lacan's teaching in his seminars, that echo also like dialogues he was having, discussions he was having, with actual colleagues or with other writers. So we, the Acrees is a very complex uh, bringing together of texts. And anyone who just tries to read the book, you buy the book and you start reading, you just <laughs> don't manage uh, reading the volume. So that's a basic observation that we all can make. So therefore, we, we thought we needed some, some help some help in what are these different texts about. Um, and then we indeed had the idea of inviting a number of scholars, a number of clinicians who had been working with specific texts in the past or who would be very well suited to provide a commentary to give a systematic reading of the text in a very slow, easy way, introducing people to the different papers from the Acrees with the idea of making it more feasible for an individual reader to get access to the complex uh, mm. Lacanian so, ideas. Um, I will go into the, the how you kind of decided to format the specific contributions in a minute. But uh, one of the things I thought might be interesting to discuss at the outset is um, 
I so I've been in a, a kind of a Lacan seminar reading group for a number of years, and one of the things that always strikes me is 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 just how much more readable uh, the seminars are often than reading one of the Acre. Um, you know, Lacan is sort of notorious for uh, his his difficult style, um, but indeed uh, I, that that tends to apply much more to reading one of the Acres than it does to his seminars, which uh, occasionally, at least, can be quite lucid. Um, so what wh- what is it about um, the written Lacan as opposed to the spoken Lacan uh, that, that can be so dense and, and kind of hard to work through? I think the obvious answer there is that Lacan works over the Acre much more. I mean, the seminars are done live. Um, you know, he's, he's ad-libbing, he's, you know, he's free improvising through the seminars. Um, so there's a spontaneity to them, whereas the Acre, he's he's working over the material. So the ideas are compacted and multi-layered. So you take any one paragraph from the agree, it's full of a complex of ideas that have been worked over to fit together and can be unpacked mm-hmm. in numerous different ways, which gives rise to this impossibility that Stain's alluding to that many people, when they try and read the agree, just, um, you know, they're, they're just confronted with this impossible mm. collection of words and, the idea that you can actually read the decree and make sense of it for many people is, you know, you know, simply not a possibility. And that's one of the things that motivated us is to tackle this impossibility and say, no, there is a possibility here. You can make some sense of it. It's not that the version, the various commentaries that we put together are the definitive interpretation, but they are at least an interpretation and they show right. the reader that it is possible to make sense of this dense work. It's an, it's an interesting question, though, that we try to play with an introduction to the book. What exactly is Ecree? Uh, you know, obviously the answer would be it's a book, but um, as Stain has already suggested, and Callum as well, it, it, you know, it wasn't in, the book wasn't constructed and designed as a book initially, and there's some evidence to suggest that... Um, that it was only really Lacan's um, prospective editor who really wanted to see this thing in print. So you, we could also ask, what, what are the what kind of texts are they in a creed? And there's the famous offhanded comment Lacan makes, well, you know, these these things, the creed, it's not meet, meant to be read. Um, and so we played around a little bit with the idea of, like, what kind of text is it? Is it a sort of labyrinthine, uh, hysterical uh, apparatus that makes us read and reread and still not understand, um, and and I think that question is still very much part of 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 how we're thinking about the the text. That's almost a an infinite text. That it's not simply to be read and digested as we may imagine a book would be, but it's it's really something that 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 challenges us and uh, and and demands multiple. Uh, returns multiple interpretive inquiries, right? Because I recall engagements. at the end of the introduction, you offer you know a plethora of interpretations of what kind of text the Acre might be, and you conclude by by basically saying it's all of them. Is, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of open ended. It's uh, it's almost like an infinite text. Uh, um, it doesn't what, end. What about this? Yes, go ahead. Also, it's. Yeah, I just want to add that um, specifically Lacan's texts are certainly not just uh, a roundup of the seminars. It's also not just a preparation for the seminars. It's something that has a quite peculiar status. Uh, and in the introduction, we refer to to Miller, who who actually said that the, the Acres have a provocative function. 
meaning that his suggestion is that perhaps Lacan was formulating some of his more provocative ideas in the Agrees, meaning ideas that uh, his audience wouldn't want to hear. Uh, and this would perhaps be a bit similar to this early text um, on the mirror stage. From that text, we know that Lacan gave it uh, at an IPA conference uh, and that there was some trouble in him bringing his message and therefore he wrote the paper. So there we see there is a paper was written because something could not be said. So maybe that's one way of looking at it. So like I was teaching and that is a, it's an oral teaching. He was not reading notes. He was like free associating for his audience. Um, and that afterwards he reflected on what did I forget to, to stress and that probably the Ikri papers are such like accents in 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 his in, in in his oeuvre of things that he didn't want um, he didn't want that these would be forgotten by 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 his um, yeah by, by by the psychoanalysts and his I wonder and, is and is that what you school. mean by there's a kind of interesting enigmatic line in the introduction um, the Acree constituted the symptom of the seminars is is that what you mean by that absolutely yeah yeah. yeah. And uh, and I yeah. mean another thing that that the three of you say in the introduction is that for Lacan himself, um, the medium of the spoken word is is much more suitable than uh, the written word for the transmission of psychoanalysis. Uh, so what what kind of problems does that pose for the writing of the Acre? And and also, do you agree that that's that 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 is uh, an issue that the that the speaking um, is a more effective way of of some kind of transmission than than uh, reading a text. Why don't we, um, if uh, Callum, if you if you have any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an obvious domain. Psychoanalysis is about speech, um, so Lacan in the performance of the seminars is is doing something very close to um, the psychoanalytic experience. But psychoanalysis has always been subtended by the written text as well. Um, so, you know, the answer yes. Um, but also no. Well, I also think that at that level, uh, of course, this tells something about Lacan. Lacan, in in the period that he was teaching, uh, he was attracting people because of his style, and his style was a way of speaking that was very insisting. Um, so it was some way of voice that was present. Uh, and I think in terms of what Lacan said, that probably his oral teaching was indeed the motor that uh, that um, fueled the transference. But I'm not sure whether this is always the case. That uh, it's 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 not sure that every teaching in psychoanalysis uh, should be start from oral teaching. I think reading itself might work as well. But probably Lacan was not following that track. He was not not such a good writer, actually. So his texts are very complex. It's very difficult to read the texts, which also illustrates that probably Lacan was not really fond of writing, uh, but more fond of speaking. I mean, it is, you know, uh, I think you mentioned as well in the introduction how um, 
uh, how different, obviously, Freud's standard edition is to the Acree. Um, you know, the standard edition is, you know, frequently commented upon as a kind of delightful, uh, you know, piece of uh, creative writing, as well as a kind of transmission of psychoanalysis that's that's actually a pleasure to read, whereas uh, the experience with the Acree is, um, you know, quite different. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's a nice comparison. It's something we playfully mentioned in the introduction, the idea that uh, Freud's texts are, <clears throat> whether creative or not, are always rational. They're always lucid. They're always, uh, they're, they're kind of like instances of the, the secondary process, whereas with Lacan, we get almost a deliberately difficult filtering through dream work operations, uh, um, unconscious structured like a language where, if anything, he causes us to work uh, and to keep on coming back to the texts, which I suppose in some yeah. ways is also accounts for why yeah, I'm so, this conversation. So how did you decide on, um, on, on how exactly these uh, kind of pieces of exegesis would be written? So I'm curious about what was the process around uh, recruiting, you know, uh, authors to write these? How did you decide on the format of each um, because so for each of the um, chapters of the book uh, there's a bit of context uh, kind of a bit of biographical context and then there's a sort of uh, paragraph by paragraph sort of analysis so how, how did you kind of come up with that form um, and um, and yeah what 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 was that process like both uh, coming up with the ideas and working collaboratively co- collaboratively to do that I think one of the the key aims of the, the three volumes was to produce a guide, something that could be read alongside the Cancer Creed. So really the format followed from that need in order for it to be a, an actual guide that you could read in parallel with the original. It had to work from either a sentence by sentence or a paragraph by paragraph commentary. So we vacillated a little bit there in terms of the precise format, but the basic format I think was set from the basic aspiration that we have when we and, and within that i mean what 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 do you see as the relationship between direct sort of exegesis uh someone trying to just uh help the reader make sense of what lacan is saying versus uh the author's uh, original argument um because i noted in in some of the chapters that you know the author has a point of view um and and in some way that's going to be transmitted but this goes back to the point derek was just making that lacan in writing the decree is putting this to work. He's not writing in a in a form that's already packaged to to fit with an understanding. He's trying to say something new. He's trying to push the reader to to think. So if you, when you read the decree, you have to think. There's no way of reading the decree without being challenged by it in some way, no matter how many times you've read it before. So it's inevitable then that our commentators are going to be you know, not able to simply um, pluck out the idea from the text, but they're going to have to be challenged by the text and um, demonstrate that challenge through their own writing. So they're going to have to have a perspective. You can't read mm. the calm without having a perspective on it. So there's two tiers to the teacher, the commentaries. One, we were very, very keen that people root their reading in the text. That was an absolute for us. And we had some authors who came back with, um, responses to the decree, which were really bouncing off the decree and, and going into other interesting, voluble ideas. But right, so that's a really interesting editorial challenge. Absolutely, um, this has to be rooted in the text. Yes, <laughs> um, there was certainly. I mean, the, the project has has taken years of our lives, and um, 
it it threw up many challenges and that i think that was one of the key challenges was actually just making sure people actually did that basic task of um, follow the text of course you're going to have your own voice in there of course you're going to have your own interpretation there are going to be arguments to be made, mm. but it has to be rooted in the text. And, and what influence did uh, some of the earlier attempts to do something like this, what influence did that have? So I know, Derek, you mentioned the Muller and Richardson, and I know uh, Bruce Fink also has produced a number of kind of commentaries on the ACRI. So did that play a role in how you conceived of this? And, and how do you see this as different from those earlier attempts? Those texts are tremendously helpful. I mean, you know, the more work that appears in English, uh, the more that the the domain of secondary scholarship on Lacan and the English-speaking world has developed, the more some of those more expository texts seem a little bit elementary. Um, So they're helpful, but I suppose what really sets this project apart is, and, and as Callum was alluding, a lot of our contributors couldn't quite believe that this is what we were asking. We wanted a paragraph by paragraph exposition um, which may involve some further interpretive uh, uh, gestures, but that was that was really trying to be uh, as faithful an engagement with the text line by line as could be, and that that really doesn't doesn't exist. And a couple of people actually who know the Lacanian literature in in French and other languages have said to me, "Wow, isn't it odd that uh, the first language that we have a book of this sort is is actually in English." which was a bit startling. I would have imagined that, you know, in French or whatever, there would have been other paragraph by paragraph expositions. But to the best of my knowledge, there aren't any. So that's the thing I think that really sets it aside from those other projects. One other thing to add to that is we've been very fortunate um, in who we've been able to get to contribute to the to the project. Um, I mean, you know, after the fact, you can always say, well, it would have been nice to have even a larger global spread of contributors. But certainly many of the uh, luminaries, many of the, the, the most respected scholars and colleagues that, that we've uh, been reading, uh, you know, as we sort of uh, came to the forefront or, or started engaging Lacanian theory, um, have been willing to contribute. So um, that makes the, the, the volume that much richer, I think, that it's not just one school or one kind of Lacanian orthodoxy or one scholar, but a variety of people from, from different uh, perspectives who, who are each contributing to the book. In some way, it, it, it was a challenge, of course, for all of the authors because we wanted them to do something else compared to what they usually do. Usually, an author is writing a paper because you have an idea and you want to expand that idea and you use uh, some ideas of Lacanian text to kind of explain what you're uh, reflecting on. What we asked is that our contributors really turned to the text, and that was indeed difficult for for some of them to kind of neglect some aspects of the text, and we wanted to to provide them a systematic reading. But at the same time, we immediately thought that we will only get a reading of a text. So we don't have the ambition with the book of providing like the correct interpretation. No, it's just one interpretation and it has the advantage of being explicit. And we hope to open up like discussions, discussions of people not agreeing with our volumes or, uh, yeah, making different uh, interpretations of, of specific paragraphs or specific sentences. Uh, because that's actually scholarly work 
systematic out into the open, not just repeating difficult formulation f- formulas that Lacan wrote, but explaining uh, explaining how you read a specific uh, line given the broader context of Lacan's oeuvre and of Lacan's, uh, yeah, the topics he was working on, mm. that specific moment That's really of great. Um, I, I wonder if, uh, did, did anything uh, surprise you about Lacan in this process? Be- uh, one, one of the things I thought, of course, is that, um, you know, there are certain Ecree that receive much more commentary uh, in the Lacanian world than others. So, you know, were there any uh, Ecree that you might have ignored or that you felt were somewhat neglected that in, in the process of putting this together, you, you realized had a new importance? Um, well, uh, let me just say a little thing about that. I don't know what my, my colleagues think. I mean, one of the one of the great advantages, of course, was some of the decree have been commented on before in, in expository forms, but a lot of them hadn't. And so, um, I mean, one of the big adventures for me, certainly, was Danny Nobis's chapter on uh, Kant with Saad uh, really, really did take things a whole lot further than I'd been able to by, by tracking some of the secondary literature. So, Yeah, if I, if I understand correctly, that one be, became such a massive project for him that he ended up also writing an entire book yeah. on it. Is that... Yeah, that's that, there was that. It, it also happened with Adrian Johnston, although his his chapters in the in the follow up uh, volume, um, uh, the Freudian thing. So in some ways, I suppose we ended up generating more scholarship than we could even fit within the books. But I suppose for me, if I was trying to answer your question, there there were many eye opening uh, moments. But what was really really helpful was just to get um, scholars um, being able to develop in such detail. Uh, these different interpretive openings into texts that I think many of us have struggled with before or sometimes have not even wanted to start struggling with just thinking that it's, it's going to be so opaque and difficult. And, um, and, and that's, that's been great. I mean, another one that was, was really helpful, particularly with students that I've been using a lot, is Todd McGowan's uh, chapter on the signification of the phallus. I mean, just left in its form in the Acree, I find it very hard to do much with that. But um, Todd's chapter, its exposition and the way he, he, he takes us through various arguments, I think is, is, well, for me at least, and working with students is, is absolutely tremendous, particularly when it comes to a concept like the phallus, which for various obvious reasons tends to be a little problematic for some. Yeah, I mean, echoing that, I'd say, for me, there's not one particular Acree that's emerged from this thinking, you know, oh my God, I've never read that in that decree before. I read it in that way before. It really was across the board. Every single piece in all three of the volumes um, had a, a light shone in it that, because it was someone else's light, brought new things out. It, it makes you read the decree in a different way, which is, um, which I guess is one of the aims. So would you say there are certain kind of received understandings of Lacan that, that this text may have troubled? Um, could, could you think of any? Well, I, th- I think mainly that, uh, I would say it in, in, in another way, some, some of the authors had a, had, a, had a hard job because they didn't find any relevant other commentaries. Uh, like, for example, the text on an ex post facto syllabary that was commented on by L. Uh, Goldman Baldwin, that, for example, is a text that hardly any Lacanian scholar ever is discussing. So, but at the same time, uh, we started from the idea it's not a coincidence that Lacan included these texts in the Ecrise. So for him, it must have been 
something that was important. So therefore, we wanted that uh, given the length of the papers, there would be like some kind of balance in the amount of words that an author could write about the, the chapter he or she was writing on uh, to make sure that it was a balanced commentary uh, because some of the texts that, that, that have been commented on frequently would lend themselves to very large texts and then we would yeah have a more like unstable reading of the agree. I mean, I can imagine, you know, a traditional kind of edited collection of essays, the editors have to kind of, um, you know, make sure that the quality is good, but the authors are sort of, you know, free free to kind of make their own, you know, contribution. But I, I would imagine that putting this together, you would have to work very closely with the authors. And, and uh, I wonder, you know, if you had to kind of suggest things for them to read or help guide them through when they were a bit lost or, what, you know, what, what was the kind of individual work with authors like in this, in this, uh, putting this together? Well, it's, there is not one answer to that. It is mixed, of course, uh, like Derek said, uh, um, concerning some papers, we were the ones who were really learning from the authors. Uh, but on the other hand, we, we could indeed offer suggestions. And sometimes we had to give feedback to people that must have been hard for them to hear that. Uh, but the idea, the basic idea was quite clear. We wanted to have... Uh, a commentary that highlights every paragraph, every line of every text. Um, and so basically if someone was neglecting about a couple of pages because it was too dense or too difficult, we wanted this author to return to the pages and to indeed work on, 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 on these. So that was not always easy. Um, and that's also why it took, it took time to to have people write the way we wanted them to write. So uh, one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading this is um, that, uh, uh, you know, Lacan, we know, entered the English-speaking world primarily through uh, sort of the academic humanities um, rather than uh, the clinic. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's indicators that um, the English reception of Lacan is, is beginning to change, that uh, as, has, as he's become sort of uh, less trendy, perhaps, as a kind of uh, quote-unquote post-structuralist thinker in the humanities, um, that uh, more and more um, the Lacanian clinic is making an impact. Um, do, do you see this book as intervening in any way in that uh, kind of, uh, the, that sort of tension between uh, Lacan as someone who's used in sort of critical studies in literary theory uh, versus uh, Lacan as a clinician? I think the fact that the three of us come from different backgrounds ourselves kind of reflects an answer to that, that we were trying to cover all bases. We're not seeing Lacan as purely of relevance to clinicians or purely of relevance to cultural theorists that we're trying to cover the whole spectrum here because Lacan is used in these different fields. And that's one of the great things about Lacan. It's, you know, he's rich enough to use very productively, whether you're looking at um, film theory or clinical practice or politics, he's, he has this application across the board. And we want these books to be of value to students and academics and practitioners across the board. Yeah, probably, I think... Um, when reading a chapter, you might see f from which background an author is coming, but we didn't want 
that to have a very big impact on the commentary that was written. The idea was that the authors should not contribute, starting from their applied specific background, is it film studies or is it clinical work, but rather to go for a truly conceptual discussion a bit apart from our other more like applied focus on on a specific topic. So we wanted all authors to kind of return to the text itself. So therefore, I don't think that these volumes can be situated in terms of uh, a turn towards the clinic. The only thing we'd say, Lacan is about clinic, uh, always. But it's not that these volumes are like hinting to some clinical applications that were not uh, discussed by Lacan, not at all. No, I, yeah, I completely agree. I suppose what's noteworthy about this is um, is it's one of uh, perhaps an increasing number of texts where you have um, academic theorists and clinicians, you know, sometimes embodied in the same person, but other times, um, you know, communicating with one another uh, in a way that um, in, in English texts on Lacan, you didn't previously see very much. Yeah, I, I think there's some truth in that. Um, it's also, I suppose, maybe just because I've been focusing a little bit on the, the final stages of the second volume, but there are there are quite a few chapters there which really do bring the, the, the clinical stuff to, to the you know, in the forefront. I mean, Stain's got a chapter in the second volume on psychosis, uh, on a question prior to any possible treatment. Um, there's also a number of chapters, actually, that are, are, are located in... Um, in, in Lacan's thinking in the 50s about how to teach psychoanalysis. Uh, what is the situation of psychoanalysis? Uh, and of course, there's also, sorry to focus a little bit on the second volume, but there's also um, a very important commentary chapter in the Acre on the direction of the treatment. So uh, while I agree with my colleagues, I think, I think I also agree with you, Jordan. I think that there is maybe slightly more clinical stuff than, than some people may have expected, certainly in volume two, if they've just come to Lacan through literary, for example, applications. That being said, though, of course, volume one has got uh, Jean-Michel Rabatet's uh, contribution. It's the fifth chapter on, on Guide. Um, there's also the Danny Nobis, which is on Saad. So, you know, that's, there's clearly a little bit of both of them there. I suppose I was also noticing just in, in some sections of, of Cree, the Cree, how um, intensely Lacan was engaging with his his peers and other psychoanalysts at the time, and and really very much trying to clarify, experiment, but also refine uh, the conceptual apparatus of psychoanalysis at the time. So that that's one way I think also of, of responding to your question is that while the book is certainly not um, the first volume or the second volume, certainly not overly focused on clinical stuff, there is an attention to those concepts that he's introducing or, or utilizing to refine what he thinks has become a kind of conceptual muddiness and laziness within the psychoanalytic world of his time. Mm, yeah, I mean, I recall um, uh, most recently when I was reading Paul Verhaga's contribution to the book, um, you, you know, it's the case when, when reading Lacan and, and as well when reading um, this text is that uh, there's so many um, different sources that uh, it draws your attention to, different theories that you might want to learn about from, you know, um, from the world of mathematics, from the world of anthropology or biology or whatever it is. Um, you know, there's so much beyond the field of psychoanalysis that one is called to study when reading Lacan. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how my colleagues would, would approach this, but one of the most fascinating questions in, in, in the world of Lacan really is what is the, the ideal uh, vessel, the, the ideal form for the transmission of psychoanalytic ideas? So, you know, in Freud, obviously, there's reference to myths. There's, there's a great deal of reference to literature. Um, and of course, Lacan, you could say in his career, there's, there's multiple different uh, attempts to think how to formalize and transmit psychoanalytic ideas, whether it's through the mathemes, whether it's through certain types of formalism, whether it's through mathematics or so on and so forth. I think that's all part of the, the, the kind of adventure. Um, and those are, are various ways of maybe trying to approach uh, the enunciation or formalization of, of what ultimately maybe can't quite be said. Yeah, uh, one of the other things um, you mentioned, Derek, is about how um, you know the, there's a kind of uh, you're fortunate to to have people from from different kind of Lacanian orientations or schools. I wonder um, if if you found that the um, the fact that this is a text written in English allowed you to bypass some of the um, kind of factionalisms that exist in the Lacanian world. Um, yeah, I, th I think to some extent that was the case. Um, I mean, uh, Stain would be much better place to talk about um, how we are located relative to the broader international network of, 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 of scholars, analysts who are working in the field. But um, I don't know. I, I sometimes think that uh, in the English-speaking world, we've got a little uh, chip on our shoulder or a little bit nervous about, like, you know, the massive uh, edifice of uh, French uh, speaking and not just French, Spanish speaking Lacanians across the world. I think there's some truth in that. But on the other hand, as I mentioned before, it's kind of refreshing that we've managed to do this thing in English, which apparently doesn't really have a uh, have a precedent um, in as much as we've got this three volume English commentary on paragraph paragraph uh, sections of the Acree. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Stan? Well, I, I think the, this book or these these, these three volumes are, of course, the result of a certain position that we as editors took. Uh, and we as editors did not start as members of this school or another school, but rather, I think, as scholars, as academics. We met each other, the three of us, we know each other through an academic conference. And so we met as academics and we wanted some, some serious study of Lacan that is not influenced by specific like political readings, like the policies of the different societies and schools, uh, and that is not influenced by a certain selection that that is made at these levels in terms of who is who should contribute, who should not contribute. No, we we, we wanted some overall study of Lacan, and then we just started checking who could we ask. And we actually didn't really wonder who is from which school. We rather uh, searched the field of, of people that we thought were writing interesting things and, and in which, of, of which we had the idea that these were persons that could contribute like an original clarifying paper on Lacan. Uh, so it had more to do with what we thought... Uh, people could bring in terms of clarifying Lacan rather than uh, for, which is their background. 
Yeah, you know, sometimes I think um, the fact that we've been starved for so long in the English-speaking world may have been part of what is, has, has motivated us doing this text. Because, you know, a, a colleague observed to me some years ago, he said, isn't it amazing that the original decree appears in, what, 1966? And in the English-speaking world, it's only 2006 when Bruce Fink's full translation emerges. I mean, it's kind of odd. It's kind of incredulous That's that that, that time lag has happened. And I remember once uh, Jacqueline Miller having this comment, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but someone reported it saying, well, no, I'm taking my time in getting the translations done into English because the longer we wait, the more it builds desire. It's kind of a frustrating thing to hear. But um, whether it's true or not, when he puts it like that, I think part of what's motivated us to do this is is that we, we don't have more access. We haven't had the full version of the ICRI in English that long. And um, in trying to gather all these contributions, I think we, we are really trying to find uh, descriptions, interpretations that, that, that we weren't able to access before. So, so yeah, I mean, I guess I wonder, so why, why now? Why this particular moment for this book? Is it simply uh, the, the normal lapse of time required between the publication of the full decree and, and this kind of commentary? Or, or is there something about this particular moment where you felt we really need to have this full extended commentary on all the decree uh, now? I think the thing is, the, the particular moment was some years ago, because it's taken us so long to get to this point. So, um it wasn't that long after the full publication of the decree that we started talking about doing this, but it's been such a complex project because we had such a um, a clear but fixed idea of what we wanted in terms of this um, paragraph by paragraph commentary. It's we've had dropouts, we've had numerous frustrations along the way. So, um, in a sense, the project has. Um, frustrated our desires but kept our desires um, going along the way and still um, we're not quite there yet the, the third volume is um, is still in progress I mean another thought is um, I know it sounds silly to talk about different generations of Lacan scholarship but I think in a way you could say if we're just playing with this argument that condition of possibility for these books for this series was uh, the coming into their own of a, of a series of scholars that uh, perhaps are more of our generation. So I'm thinking of Ed Plath, for example. I'm thinking both of Callum also and, and Stain, their own contributions to the book. And it, it's kind of helpful that we've had Yael Goldman, Baldwin's another one, um, as is Stephanie Swales. I think it kind of helps that there's this, um, you know, excuse the cliched phrase, whatever, this emerging uh, generation or something of Lacan scholarship, which which has helped. Because certainly I think when, when the majority, well, when the three of us started doing Lacan stuff, there was, you know, a series of fairly big established names in the English-speaking world, and not just the English-speaking world, but uh, increasingly the the developments that have happened in in the secondary literature mean that important new stuff is is, is coming out, and I think that's really propelled the project. Um, Callum and I also have a, a work on a, another book series, and I think we've we've seen that as well, where we've been genuinely impressed by by even work that that good PhD students have done in their their doctorates on Lacan. And so, in a way, um, despite that maybe Lacan is not as trendy or fashionable as he once was, 
um, in, in, you know, so-called post-structural scholarship, it, it's, it's a tremendously exciting time to be working in, in Lacanian theory just because the general base level of, of scholarship, I think, has risen quite dramatically and there's more available literature to work on. Stan, did you have something you wanted to add? I saw your little uh, hand up. Oh, uh, that was already up uh, like 15 minutes. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I just had another thought. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it. Like uh, At the same time, it's not the idea that with these books that we want to, to, to close something. It's not that we have the definitive guide to Lacan or the definitive guide to Lacan's decrease. Uh, decrease indeed they, they, these were published in 1966 uh, it's actually quite early Lacan and it's, the, it's, 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 it's the Lacan from the early seminars that we hear uh, and, and, and the texts were published that in, in that specific period but there is Lacanian work before the decrease and there is quite some Lacanian work after the decrease so he wrote other texts after the decrease so uh, we have another challenge, uh, another challenge meaning that it was only part of Lacan's oeuvre that is translated in, in English, and it's the Greece. But now we have in French the Autre uh which is also something that we already discussed. Should we write uh, or edit volumes now on Autre or what, what, what should we do? Because we cannot say that this is that this was the last word that that that, that, that had to be said about about mm. and uh, and what are some of the differences uh between uh you think this kind of later version of text and and the current uh the ecri what what's the significance of of us not having access to this right now well um these volumes are certainly a product of the english translation being published in in, in 2006 that that's for sure uh, but at the same time, we know that there are other texts as well, and some of these has, have not yet been translated. Uh, so we're yeah waiting to for another momentum. That there will come another momentum to to do something similar with other things. Uh, with with well, for example, the moment Otrikri is, is is translated in English. Um, yeah, but that there is more yeah. work that needs to be done. And, and I wonder. I mean, we know from reading the the seminars how Lacan's thought, like Freud before him, was was constantly in process of of evolving and turning back and reconsidering, picking up new ideas, dropping ideas, and you know, as Stan says, what we've done is we've produced these commentaries on a certain period of Lacan's work, but you know, those ideas evolve and turn move forward, move back, yeah, transform into, into other things. And that's worked. And I wonder, time. Derek, you, you mentioned how great it is that there's this kind of newer generation of Lacanian uh, scholars who were able to take part in this project. Um, and, and one of the things that made me think of as well is that, um, you know, many people in this newer generation, um, you know, have an interest in, uh, in all kinds of other fields. So you have uh, Eve Watson, who's written a book on queer theory and psychoanalysis, uh, Todd McGowan, of course, uh, writes about film theory and has a lot of has had a lot to say about feminist film theory. So, um, do you think that some of these other um, that that the that the author's interest in some of these other areas, um, political, uh, you know, feminist, queer, um, 
cultural studies, whatever it may be, did that uh, shape in some way um, how these Ecri were read? I mean, I, I think that stuff and the, the multiplicity of the various um, interests, directions, exemplifications, examples of the authors is, is absolutely tremendous. Just because one of the difficulties of going back to, to Lacan and going back to the Ecree and going back to ideas, a lot of them are in the 50s that he's working on at the time, is he's constantly giving exemplifications and examples. And one of the difficulties in, in reading Lacan in English is not simply the, the ornate Baroque style that he layers on us, so as to keep us guessing and not understanding. But it's also, at a very straightforward level, aside from the, the obvious factor of translation, is, is it's so difficult for us to, to properly engage with many of the examples, the books, the, the literature, and in some instances also films, ideas, philosophers that were his contemporaries. So I think we run the risk at some point in thinking, okay, we're going to do the purest Lacan thing and then we'll just locate him and we'll do a, a clear exposition of all the sources he was engaging at the time. If one does that, that's helpful. That's great. That's half the task. But I think it also helps to put the ideas to work today as well to give new exemplifications, new new tests, new experiments of how the ideas might be applied. Because indeed, that's what Lacan himself seems to have been doing. So uh, I think we, it's that tension between doing you know, good expositions, but also expositions that don't, um, are not limited to the frame of reference and time when they were first articulated, that they need to be, as it were, metabolized or, or put into contact with contemporary uh, developments, uh, social theory, understandings, different disciplines. And, and that's, I think, what we're trying to do. Um, and and, it's, and it's, it's good to see, and I think this is also what we're hoping to do in the forthcoming uh, ECRE conference, which we'll, where we'll launch the second of the books, is that when we started collecting papers and people started submitting ideas for what to present, we kept on stressing, it's about the ECRE, so keep the ECRE in there. And people did that, but they, they were able to take it in a great number of different yeah, would, directions. Would one of you like to say something about this conference? Because I know that that's, that's coming up and is a kind of big moment for this project. Um, yeah, we're, uh, well, there was a, maybe uh, Stane could start us off by talking about the conference he organized uh, last year, because this is the second in, in a series of conferences. So if Stane's willing to do that, then I'll say something afterwards. Yeah, we had the first one in Ghent uh, last year um, with a big audience, uh, indeed with papers, both focusing on the decrees themselves and giving further commentaries and more applied papers in which people use ideas from ICRIS to clinical questions, uh, cultural study questions. It was very open, but the idea was start from something that has to do with the ICRIS. Uh, and that was a very engaging conference with many dialogues, many discussions, like a very good atmosphere, very lively atmosphere, very open discussions and conversations. Uh, a number of these papers have also now been grouped in, in, in a journal that we will bring to uh, Duquesne uh, when the conference is there in Pittsburgh. And yeah, so the idea now is, now we have uh, volume two and we have a conference number two and then we are with Derek again. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the limitations of um, having had the first conference 
um, however successful it was apparently, I, I wasn't there, but I think it was a fantastic success. It's just that lots of people in North America found it a little bit more difficult to, to, to get there. So if we have alternating conferences, I suppose what we're saying is that the 2019 event, which we'll be hosting at Duquesne University, Pittsburgh, between the 11th and 13th of October, is that um, a lot of people who are based in North America uh, would more easily be able to get there. But it, it also just makes me think, um, some of the comments earlier on, we were discussing, uh, you know, Lacan's ideas of what, what at some level might be the, the best form of transmission, the idea that the seminars are spoken. It's kind of nice that the conferences were organized precisely to introduce and launch the book. So what that means then is um, we'll launch the second volume at this coming conference, and some of the people who've contributed both to the first volume and to the second, and indeed to the third, will speak, and they will present some of the papers that they have prepared, their expositions for the book. But there's a whole plethora of different perspectives and papers um, and so we have a nice conjunction of a, a series of spoken interventions alongside the texts that we've prepared themselves. But uh, yeah, the conference is looking pretty exciting. We've got um, Annie Rogers is doing one of our keynotes, as is Danny Novus. Um, we'll be having a book launch on the second night of the conference, where we'll launch the second volume of Reading Lacan's Decree, but also Bruce Fink's new translation of, I think it is volume uh, seminar six. Um We've also got uh, Stain and Callum are both doing keynotes, as is Stephanie Swales, so is Todd McGowan. So we've really got um, an impressive array of people. And, uh, you know, I've spent many years going to psychoanalysis conferences trying to get a little bit more Lacan and, 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 and getting bits. But what's kind of refreshing about this event is that if, you, if you're taking Lacan seriously or you're interested in Lacan, is that the whole thing is going to be about Lacanian psychoanalysis in the Accree. So that's, that's also kind of exciting for us. And I think it's, it underscores the idea that um, Stan was talking about earlier, that the, the production of the three volumes was not meant to be a definitive word. It wasn't closing it down saying we've done the Accree now. And the fact that the conferences really underscores that and opens it up and says, you know, we've written, we've produced the books. That's the start of a conversation. Now come to the conference and engage in that conversation. All right. Well, so we're beginning to uh, uh, run out of time here. So I thought um, just as a final uh, kind of closing question, uh, and apologies if, if this is a bit of a difficult one to answer on the spot, but I wonder if each of you might be able to say something about a particular uh, Acree um, uh, uh, contribution that uh, you you know you helped to edit um, that that you particularly enjoyed or uh, learned something from or it opened something up for you um, whoever whoever wants to begin first uh, that'd be great be great to hear um, I'll go first just because I'm scared one of my colleagues is going to steal one I was going to talk about <laughs> um, I, I really well there, there's a bunch of them but certainly in, in terms of the first volume um, the Kant with Saad Kant of Exar, Danny Nobis's chapter was was really uh, an adventure just in terms of how much additional um, archival work that he did and, um, and 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 how that text really does make one understand things in a slightly different way. So that, that was a that was a moment for me, as was Todd McGowan's, which I've mentioned before, just because that uh, signification of the phallus paper has always proved so difficult, at least for me, not for everybody, but I'm presuming a lot of people, and for students. And, you know, he, he really does make the point very strongly, for example, in his chapter that, well, you know, sometimes people think, well, you've got these two paradigms through which one should view 
sexuation. You know, there's this kind of biological and then there's this cultural uh, social constructionist one. And then often there's an inclination to think, well, uh, a psychoanalytic one just falls under a kind of culturalist perspective. And he makes the argument very strongly that no, it, it doesn't. It's got very strong critical things to say about that assumption in and of itself, that you really need a, a third direction to think psychoanalytically what sexuation is. So those were two of my most uh, uh, appreciated chapters where I felt I really learned something new. Yeah, Derek, you mentioned already too, so... Uh... <laughs> it's okay, we I'm, can I'm have repeats. Re <laughs> I'm sure you all got no, 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 things no. from them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna mention one paper from uh, the third volume that will be published, which is on the first part of the increase. Um, there we will have a very good paper by Dominic Huns on logical time, which is like a nerdy paper of Lacan, but a paper with a huge impact on Lacan's entire teaching because there he's already focusing on logics. He's already focusing on division, the divided subject. It's, it's, it's not the concepts that he uses there, but it's a very early text, very dense. And Dominique really uh, succeeds in explaining the clue of that paper. But I could mention many more um, other papers, but that was one that I particularly enjoyed uh, reading. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with both Stain and Derek. It's, you know, the particular papers they point out. But um, I, I'm going to cheat in my answer and say the paper that really opened my eyes was my own contribution, because it was the very fact of having to write a commentary. I found such a challenge that made me really engage with the Acree in a different way. And I think all of our authors... Uh, I'm hoping Derek and, and Stain will echo this, have experienced the same thing, that you think you know the Acree, um, you think you know particular papers in the Acree, but when you actually come to articulate your own understanding of it, it puts you in a very different position. So I would invite all the readers to read our volumes, but then turn back to the Acree and try it for themselves. Fabulous. Well, uh, Derek, Stain, Callum, this has been such a delight. Thank you uh, so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. Okay. That was a pleasure. Yeah.